Welcome to Birth Mystics with your hosts, Katie and Stephanie. Inanna was a queen and a priestess, and she felt this call. And when Inanna realized she had to do this thing, her call was to descend below all into the underworld and then to come back. Um, She knew this would be a transformative journey for her. She prepared by leaving her current responsibilities. She prepared by gathering things she would need. Inanna then descended and was met at a first threshold. And every time she met a gatekeeper and... The first gate she simply demanded to go through and was allowed through. And at every gate, the gatekeeper demanded something of her. And at every gate, it was a more difficult thing to give up. As she descended each gate, she had to confront a lot of her own things. When she was asked to give up some of her items, she realized that she was confronting some of her pride. As she was asked to give up other things, like do you remember any of them specifically that stand out of the seven? Yeah, like there's a lapis scepter, there's a breastplate... Which is protecting her heart. And I definitely remember the seventh. Do you remember the seventh? No, tell me. It's her robe. Mm. And I just always thought that was really significant because she's left in absolute nakedness yes. by the very end. Mm-hmm. I love that. And I'm not sure it's which gate, but at one gate she begins to protest. And then she continues to protest more. At the final gate, she is, she's weeping and saying, this is not fair. Why do I have to do this? This is too much. I can't do this. Um, but she does and she descends, then she arises a different person and arises and becomes a really great, even greater queen and priestess and warrior than she was before. I love this story. I love all that it can tell us about the birth year. We talk about crossing thresholds in the birth world or in life in general. And I love that symbolism because it gives such beautiful meaning to some of our biggest struggles. So some of the thresholds that we talk about or that are celebrated in our culture are things like weddings. When we come of age, like when we turn 18, we're an adult and usually people have a larger 18th birthday party, birthdays. Those are some of the things we put weight on. But some of the ones that we do in life that we all know about that maybe don't get celebrated in the same way where it can be kind of a celebration, right, is menstruation or puberty. That's one that doesn't really celebrate it. It's more hush-hush. And especially the first motherhood year, all motherhood years, but especially the first motherhood year. I feel like we do it in our society with a lot of things, like you get a lot of gifts and stuff when you become a mom. Very geared towards the baby, right? Yes. Which is certainly helpful, but mm-hmm. maybe a little bit short-sighted as well. Yeah. Like it's who I can, I think with every baby, I've actually just added, like there's less and less stuff. Isn't that funny? <laughs> it's like, well, getting rid of all of that. Yeah, now I never know how much use I actually that need. Changing table. Like, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and then realizing the things that I really do need and more of what will make my life easier is my mentality, is the support I have physically and emotionally from those around me, and all of those different. And maybe the simplicity. Like, maybe that is why we end up getting rid of a lot of the stuff as we realize more stuff just equates to more responsibility and like more clutter and all the things, mm-hmm. right? More cleaning, more. Yeah. More of that. So we talk about crossing thresholds. We want to talk about some of that emotional journey, right? Like what we're moving in and a threshold, like looking at its base, a threshold is when we leave something old behind and there's like a pinpoint where we are moving into something new. There's like an event or a day or something specific that marks the change into that new experience. So when you're getting married, for example, or you're moving in with someone, you gather kind of your things and you kind of 
you'll have maybe talks with some friends who are already married and you'll do some preparation before and then you have a day where you kind of emotionally celebrate this joining and from then on you have this person to whom you've committed your life and you're going to be living with them or if you move in you'll have like maybe a move-in day and that uh, that day marks that transition into this new phase and afterwards I don't know about you but my first year of marriage was definitely a an experience. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I would agree with you. I would say hands down it was the most challenging year of our whole marriage. No, me yeah. too. Yeah. I moved to, so my husband's from Germany and I had double transition because I did an international move mm. um, at the same time as a marriage. So, yeah, that's um, a and I was a virgin. So I also mm-hmm. had that sexuality sexual journey all, initiation. all in one. Right. And looking back, um, I think I suppressed a lot of what my body and my mind were trying to prepare me for. I just was like, everything's fine. I'm going to be fine. Like I'm hardcore <laughs> <laughs> yeah. and this will be fine. And so my first year was very tumultuous, mm. very, very tumultuous. I'm actually look back and I'm like, man, that's kudos to me for staying. Absolutely. (laughs) That was really hard. And especially being in a foreign country, I couldn't just like run over to a friend's house. And a lot of times we'd have arguments and everybody in America was sleeping. Mm. And I'm not really good at calling people in crisis anyways, but I didn't really have a lot of support. So I look back at that threshold and I ignored a lot before it. And after I kind of dealt with the consequences and even now, there's still quakes because I just did not allow myself to prepare for the journey, but the journey happened anyways, Wow. which I think sometimes that's where trauma can happen. And that's where it feels so heavy and hard is because there's some of the transitions where we don't really consciously and intentionally prepare, mm-hmm. which pushes off a lot of it until afterwards. So a lot of talking about this with birth, I think a lot of people who have a really difficult postpartum are often feeling the rocked waves of things they did not allow themselves to feel, express, and work through during pregnancy. Absolutely. And when you're feeling very broken open, very raw, and also with the added responsibility of a baby, sometimes it's really hard. Like those things will come up and if they've built up, it's kind of like a dam releasing. So with birth, you think about the birthing year is kind of this with Anana's journey that you have this preparation space, which is from when you find out that you are pregnant or become pregnant to the birth. And a lot of people will prepare in a lot of different ways. They'll take a class. They'll try and understand what's going on. Some people don't prepare at all. I've had clients that that didn't really put any thought or time into preparing for their birth. And during the birth itself, you, if you've gathered those things, your robe, your breastplate and all these things, and um, you carry them with you, it helps you to feel good. But a lot of times you're going to be not shedding them, meaning that they weren't useful, but they're all kind of parts of maybe the ego or they kind of get stripped down to like the barest of what you are. Yeah. or And perhaps we could even say that it's that they were useful because those are the things that did grant Inanna, Inanna passage. If she didn't have those things to strip down she wouldn't really be descending. That's true. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. So it is kind of paradoxical in that regard. Mm-hmm. But So when I you brought a lot to prepare yourself, you have these things to trade and you have things that's yeah. more willing. Like I brought this breastplate and it's not like always exciting to give up the things. Mm-hmm. But when you haven't brought as much then and you feel like things are being taken that you don't even, like you're taking more than you have. Yeah. And if I may hearken back to the myth, like when you read the actual text, it's like an ancient Sumerian myth 
once upon a time it was written in cuneiform in like stone tablet, which mm-hmm. is pretty cool. Which is amazing. But if if you can get your hands on like the actual translation, it actually says that it was that she went to the seven temples of me. Oh. And I love that little detail. Mm-hmm. I don't even fully know all of the ramifications of what that can mean, but I always think to myself when when I look back at my preparation for birth, it's like you're just trying to kind of get yourself together. And that can look like a lot of different things. Like you said, sometimes it's educational. Sometimes it's emotional release. Sometimes it's getting your supplies and getting the baby's room put together and all of those aspects. Or physical. Some women will feel super drawn to like, I know with my first pregnancy, that was one of the intuitions I did follow was that there were certain things that when I found out like your baby's made of what you eat, like yeah. it's just that information. Completely for changed me, her. was like, you? oh. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I was like, oh, the crap. <laughs> yeah. Like it just made me realize, okay, well, like for me, one was caffeine and this is controversial and isn't like you do what you want. But for me, when I heard caffeine gets into your amniotic fluid, I was like, "Mm, don't like that. Mm -hmm. Like, I don't really love what it does to me. I kind of get this, like, it definitely affects me a lot. And I'm a full-blown human. Mm -hmm. I did not like the idea. So I just was like, I'm not going to drink caffeine anymore while I'm pregnant. And I've mostly Mm -hmm. stuck to that since then because I feel like I feel better when I don't, for me personally. Yeah. Yeah. And I had a couple other things just in my diet that I was like, okay, that's not... I don't feel good about that anymore. Yeah. And I think when you're in pregnancy, that's some of the, it can be really beautiful and hard because it feels like a big responsibility because like in Anana's descent, when she finds out she has the call for, she has all these things she has to do to kind of wrap things up before she can follow her call. And I feel like I'm grateful when I do become conscious of things that don't feel good, but it also puts a lot of responsibility on me that I now know, like my eyes are open, Mm. I'm awake to this thing that. I have indescribably felt is no, no longer good, but then applying that in real life can feel really burdensome and changing your life is hard. <laughs> and that's been like, I'm even feel like now I'm still trying to journey towards like nutritionally the place that I want to be, but it woke me up to that. And I don't know if I would have gone on that entire journey if pregnancy hadn't kind of awoken that preparation in me. I feel like that's so true of parenthood because suddenly our choices are now affecting the next generation. Mm. And I think that's why it naturally wakes us up because it was probably easier for you to eat, drink. I'm assuming you were consuming the caffeine through beverage, (laughs) the Diet Coke or whatever it was, you know, Um, when it was just your body. And we're, but as soon as you realized all my choices are going to now influence this growing fetus, that changes everything. Mm. Yes doesn't mean we suddenly get it all perfect all at once, but this was one area that you really chose to step up and make a change in your life. Mm-hmm. Exactly. I interrupted though, and you were talking about the different forms of preparation leading up to. Oh, I mean, I loved that tangent. I mean, ultimately, I just think it's a really powerful concept that the work prenatally that we're doing is gathering me and then recognizing that the work of birth is then stripping all of that down. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it seems so what is the word like contradictive almost? Yeah. It's like, why do all of this building up if I then have to like destroy it and mm-hmm. strip it down and give it away? But I feel like that's true of any journey. Like even think of going on a backpacking trip, you, you're you spending all your time getting your supplies, getting your gear, loading everything up. And then on the trip, you're slowly whittling away at your supplies. And by the time you're coming down the hill, your backpack is light. Mm. And you've shed weight if you've done a heavy-duty backpacking trip, you know. Mm. And 
you're not the same person coming back that you were going in. And, and that's why I say there is a usefulness to each of those things that you've gathered, whether that's philosophical and esoteric or whether that's very tangible, like a hypnosis track. That's something you've gathered to mm-hmm. give you what you need to make your descent. But eventually those tools do get used up. That, ha- that hypnosis track may get you through early labor and then you might hit active labor and find that that particular track is no longer working. That's when you pull out the next item that you packed with you, which might be your doula. Mm. And then she's going to do all of this work to support you. And, and then at some point you realize, oh my gosh, I have to go into this alone. Yeah. Even though I'm supported and I'm surrounded by people, this is, this is my journey. And that's when you take off the robe. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like I think that's when you're really at the crux of it. Mm. And you're like, I'm, I can't rely on anybody else to, to see me through this. Yeah. I think that's always a really beautiful part of labor for me. And then when you get a little more seasoned in attending births, I feel like you begin to sort of see this. You get eyes for it. Yeah. And there's always a moment in unmedicated labors where she goes into herself mm. and she's not really receiving what your, yeah. you, your touch may still be comforting or good that it's there. But at that point, often it's just kind of hands off and allow her to, to just, because she's the one who has to do it. She's the one who has to ride that biggest wave, that mm-hmm. those those big couple waves that will get the baby out. And I think that's, and a lot, a lot of times that's the time when she will become physically naked. Like a mm-hmm. lot of women will keep their bra or keep their, their robe on or keep something on. But usually when it gets to pushing, a lot of women have shed, have shed what they're wearing. And I think this is when the term holding space really comes to life for me as a doula, because that is oftentimes when I am moving to the outer ring and I'm like, I'm just going to hold this space for you because now my hands-on support isn't serving the same purpose that it did two hours ago. Mm-hmm. And she, she is in such a state and such a zone that it's like, she doesn't need me in the same way, but I can protect her space yeah. and I can be like guarding and, and be her keeper of, of this space. And I think that's, that's one of the beautiful things of being a doula and taking kind of the ego out of it is realizing at the end of the day, she is the hero of the story. She is central power mm. and that she does have that little bit alone and accepting that I just um, had a doula message me that went to a birth that went very long and ended in an emergency C-section and she was feeling a little bit down on herself. I told her that's one of the hard things about becoming a doula is realizing that there we have no power. We, <laughs> we have influence and we can create space and of course we can make things, we can improve things, we can help. But at the end mm-hmm. of the day, we cannot determine the experience because we are not in the driver's seat. The mother is at all times, pregnancy, birth, and postpartum, the one behind the wheel. And how I wish we could guarantee birth outcomes for mm. our clients, but yes. unfortunately, we can't. And you know, I say unfortunately, but maybe it's a good thing that we can't, because mm. then we would be taking all the wildness and the wonder out yeah. of birth. And honestly, I think for like as hard as it may be, a cesarean is a threshold just as much as any vaginal birth is a threshold, because you will be stripped down you will be laid bare. Mm-hmm. And even though it's not quite the same as the way the hormones can work in a vaginal birth, there's, the opportunity is equally there. And the threshold becoming a mother is the same. Mm. At the end, you are, have a baby. And even if that baby passes, you still had a baby and you still love that baby. You're still a mother of that baby. 
So just reminding that sometimes your threshold may look a little different, but they all, and that's kind of the beauty of what I'm trying to get at today, is that no matter the journey, there will be these moments and they will, some of them be very hard. And Nana was a warrior, goddess, priestess, very well-renowned woman that had had this wonderful education, just a powerful woman. And yet she was reduced to begging in tears. And that does not mean she's not a powerful woman. It just means she's experiencing what she needs to experience and allowing ourselves to be that level of vulnerability and not judge or mock ourselves for it is a big part of the potential that's in birth. And I think that's what keeps a lot of birth workers coming back is because we just see the potential that lies there for our whole lives. So within like the birth year, you have your pregnancy, your buildup and your preparation right towards this event, which is birth. And then afterwards, you have your postpartum, which is the healing and the integrating of the things you've learned and meeting your new self and your new baby. Birth within itself has, and we kind of mentioned it before, its own threshold. And that threshold is called transition. Transition for, I'm assuming everybody listening is familiar with that term, but I will give you a short explanation in case you're not. The transition is a time when your body moves from one gear into another, which is from opening and softening. Um, which is cervix dilation and baby position moving down and the cervix softening and moving out of the way to slowly getting into the gear for expulsion, for having a baby leave your body, which is a very powerful thing. If you've ever seen the size of a baby head and the size of a vagina, that's (laughs) got to be a powerful experience. Our bodies are made to do it, but it's a big thing. And that hormonal adjustment is massive. It switches gears from one very strong hormonal mechanic to a very different mechanic. It switches from like the softening, that's where we try and get out of the way and relax, to adrenaline, which is a very strong, that's where you hear people like with adrenaline gets you over the finish line. Adrenaline's where the mom lifts the car off the baby. Like Mm -hmm. adrenaline is strength, but it's also very different. So a lot of times mothers in early labor and early active labor may be feeling a little bit cold, Um, They want to just like have a little quieter. Once you get to adrenaline, most mothers will begin to often begin to sweat. Mm -hmm. Um, They make it flushed. They get really hot. A lot of moms like, oh, love to have like cold cloths on them just because their body is doing this massive shift. And that shift is in many births very noticeable, not just physically with those things I mentioned, but emotionally. That's often a time when sentences will come. The big one is, I can't do this. That's the big one. I don't know if I can do this or I can't do this. This is too hard. I don't want to do this anymore. (laughs) It's the self-doubt. Yeah. And that's where we hit the self-limiting beliefs. Mm -hmm. That's where we hit that point of where we've kind of in our whole lives, whether we meant to or not, we've created this barrier for ourselves of how big we're allowed to be, Mm. um, of how big our experience is allowed to be, um, of how big our feelings are allowed to be. And we've created it in our minds. And that's a point in birth where we go above and beyond those feelings, where we begin to hold the power that we all have that is massive and deep, and it can feel terrifying because we've created this idea and we go, we just blow past it all of a sudden, or we're about to blow past it. Like we're standing at that barrier and we can sense that we have to go past it. That's that threshold. Yeah. Is another, that emotional threshold of meeting that spot in ourselves and becoming conscious of, I'm, I'm afraid and I don't know if I can do this. Am I good enough for this? Am I strong enough for this? Can I hold this? Mm-hmm. Can I really bring this to the end? I'm about to go further than I've ever gone before. Mm-hmm. 
That ring that reminds me of Lord of the Rings when they stop in the middle of the field and who is yeah. it? Is it Mary or one of them? Pippin? I actually think it's Sam. Is it Sam? I think Sam turns to Frodo. Yeah, I'm sorry, I should be better at this. Oh, I could but be one wrong. of the hobbits <laughs> <laughs> turns to the other. I think it's Sam. I think uh-huh. you're right, and says, "This is the farthest I've ever been from home." If I take one more step, mm-hmm. yeah. And he just like takes a moment to emotionally connect with. Frodo in that moment mm. and to take that like you watch him kind of consciously take that step and then go whew and keep walking so a lot of times like that's where as a doula a lot of people are like just get I just need someone to help me pass that moment and that's the point where relying on that support can be very powerful to have someone to remind you like you're already doing this yeah. this step is no different than the step you just took it's just one more step and maybe that was more an early labor analogy. So if we want to stick with Lord of the Rings a little bit longer, <laughs> let's fast forward to like on the slopes of Mount Doom. Mm, that's true. <laughs> you know, and there's kind of like a repeat scenario of that in a way, mm-hmm. because instead of saying, hey, this is the furthest we've been from the Shire, it was more like if we take even, you know, one more climb, we will have accomplished what we set out to accomplish. And there is that moment, like they have... A moment before they actually finish the journey and I we do know how much Sam ends up being influential to that right like I think that speaks to the importance of having all of the me gathered um, mm. because Sam is like the quintessential support person and there is a point that he has to put Frodo over his shoulders to get him to the, mm-hmm. the, the volcano but Who's the one that ultimately has to decide to throw the ring in? Sam cannot do that for him. Mm. So I think there's a lot of powerful parallel on the other side of that, oh, too. Oh, the nerd in me is so happy. Oh, yes, <laughs> me too. <laughs> no, I love that because it's that's one of the reasons, like, doulas love that. Because if you can be that person, how beautiful is that to have that that moment in the life of someone else where you can look them in the eye and be like, you're, you are way bigger than you think you are. And mm. lean on me just for this moment. Lean on me and I will walk with you a few steps. Yeah. Um, and that moment is, can be extremely telling. And I think a lot of times people, and that's what makes me extremely sad, is that a lot of people feel ashamed of how they react in that moment. Mm. I'll have a lot of people after birth um, who will confide in me that they feel like, oh, I was hoping that I would be so calm and composed. Wow. Or I was hoping that if I had my tracks, I just believed that I would not struggle. Yeah. And I didn't know I was going to be so loud. Yes. That's a big one. Finding your voice. And do you even find prenatally when you're sitting down in your different appointments? I I have clients, when I say, what is your biggest fear for this upcoming birth? I'm surprised at how often they say, I just don't want to be that loud person that's like making animal noises. Like I'm Mm. really afraid of that. It's not about the pain of childbirth. It's not about... Do I have what it takes? That it's I don't want to have a public display of me being out of control. Yes, and that's fascinating to me yeah. psychologically. Mm-hmm. No, me too. I'll have people who will say, um, "I really believe, and I just would like to be calm. Like I just hope I can relax through everything." Yeah, and that's not bad. I know those things are bad. And some people won't even admit that that's a big central thing for them or not even know themselves. Yeah, I was say they may not have that at the forefront of their mind. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That that's like their it's fear. subconscious. And they just think like, oh, no, I would never yell. <laughs> no. <laughs> yeah. Like, I've got things under wraps. <laughs> I would right. never be that loud. But that's kind of another one of those invitations and one of those powerful things is when you reflect back on your birth and you think about why 
did it bother me that I was vocal while I was doing that amazing thing? And why did I allow myself to pinpoint on something that I had to get, do to get through it and tear myself down because of it instead of celebrating what I did? Why, why is that my focus? Mm-hmm. Why can I not step back and say, okay, it wasn't pretty. <laughs> Yeah. It wasn't pretty. It was messy. But it, it was, was raw. Yeah. And I'm so damn proud of myself. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Like I did what I had to do. Mm-hmm. And I think some of it may be afraid of what the partner will think. And that's a trust in the birth space situation, right? Sometimes. Mm-hmm. And sometimes it's just themselves being afraid of their own wild. Because we've mm-hmm. talked about this before, and I'll get on this soapbox all day long, is <laughs> <laughs> that we have been taught to be afraid of being wild and out of control. Yeah. And yelling, honestly, yelling for me felt powerful. I never felt more, it made me feel connected with my body, my noises. It made me feel like I had this way of, of kind of releasing power or sitting in the power by allowing my voice to be a part of that power. Right. So I think that's kind of the reframe that, that sometimes can happen if we get reflective and look back and the allowing. I just had a client who got very loud and animalistic. And afterwards she said that was in the moment hard because she was generally a more put together mm-hmm. and not someone who really shared in a big way, but for her to allow it to be big was part of what made it so transformative for her was because mm. when she allows herself to do whatever comes, when you really are able to to take away those self-limiting beliefs or take away kind of that ego, like we've talked about with Anana, where we're able to release yeah. that, then whatever comes, we know that was the most genuine, deep, wild part of me that dealt with it in the way that needed to be dealt with. Mm-hmm. And I got my baby out. I keep hearing Glennon Doyle in my head. I'm a goddamn cheetah. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Because I feel like birth is such an amazing untaming. And we do live in a very conservative area, Katie. And so a lot of our clients, I think, are coming from a very tamed background. I myself was. And I do feel that my first birth was experienced in a very traumatic way because I resisted my untaming. I mm-hmm. was holding on very firmly to my good girl ways. Yes. And so any sign of animalistic sounds or even sexual sounds for that matter, like for mm-hmm. me to like moan and groan and have it sound slightly sexual was very uncomfortable for me because I had people in the room and I thought sex is private and I, I don't want to be making sounds that would make people think of lovemaking. Like, so I was that whole spectrum uncomfortable, mm-hmm. <laughs> whether yes. they were soft and romantic sounds or if they were loud growls, I want, I just wanted to be the silent birther. And I tried so hard. And here's the thing, when you're keeping your mouth shut off, if you're restricting the sounds that are coming out of your throat... What do we think is happening downstream? Mm-hmm. <laughs> we know there's a powerful connection between our voice, our vocal cords, and our pelvic floor and our and our vagina. Mm-hmm. I loved looking at, if you want to go look up, I'm not sure where you could find it, but there's a picture that shows your throat and your larynx and all of that yes. and your vagina and you can, and compare, you can them. compare them and mm-hmm. they are so similar. Mm-hmm. Like I have they, this in my childbirth manual. We have a whole section on this. Yeah. Wow, that's awesome. Just the power of free vocalization and how it's actually a fantastic way to promote dilation and, and effacement. Mm-hmm. And we don't, I think we underestimate it. 
Yeah. No, it's the same with sex, though. Like, if you sit back and think about it, I definitely was afraid to make really loud noises, whether it was because we were somewhere. Like, if you're in a hotel, that's like, oh, I want the neighbors. you're at your in-laws. Yeah, I want your (laughs) in-laws. We live with my parents for a little bit. Right. Or if your children are in Mm -hmm. another area of the house, like... That that honestly restricts the goodness for me. Like it can't be a big expansive O mm-hmm. for me. I've I've rarely had, and I guess there were some like elements of like, ooh, we're being naughty. Someone could find us out that definitely made for that factor of good O. Yeah. But in general, without the noise, it definitely restricts the experience. Amen. And yeah. I don't know if it's that way for all women, and you may think that's that way for you, but if you're someone who generally is very, very quiet, I dare you. I dare you. <laughs> To allow yourself to be loud mm-hmm. next time you have sex. And just see what it feels like. And maybe you'll resist it. Maybe you won't like it. It'll feel scary. But you will have learned something about yourself. Yeah. Like, oh, this is a block for me. Mm-hmm. Like being loud is a block for me. What can I do? How can I prepare mm-hmm. to allow myself to use noise if it feels good at birth without this block? Because then you have to imagine yourself, if you have not ever given birth, to then be in a, a little bit more of a public setting, a lot more of a public setting if you're birthing in the hospital where you have people coming and going that you may not have ever even been introduced to yet. Could yeah. you even imagine making those sounds in that kind of a setting? Yeah. So things like, we'll use my clients as often we'll talk about things like headphones yeah. or facing the other way where all the people are. Mm-hmm. Having a conversation with your partner about, hey, so I'm a little feeling a little self-conscious about the birth and stuff that might happen. And I'm worried I'll freak you out. (laughs) Mm -hmm. So I want you to know, like I might start making noises and I really need you to be like my cheerleader. I'd love it. If you even just once or twice, just tell me you're doing a great job. Like it sounds like this noise is helping you keep going. Yeah. Oh, I love, I love love what I'm hearing. hearing. Mm -hmm. I love the way you're using your voice. Wow. My warrior woman. Mm -hmm. I'm so proud of you. Like just remind, sing your partner down. Cause a lot of partners want to help. And we think they should just instinctively know what to say and do. But it is so unfair to expect them to know what we need to hear in those situations. Especially if they are seeing a side of their partner that they have never seen before. It can be off-putting or alarming or confusing or Mm -hmm. different. And maybe sometimes truly awe-inspiring, but awe-inspiring to the point of silence. And we encourage you to be awe-inspired to the point of affirming to your Mm. partner and let them hear from you that... That these sounds are accepted by you. Mm-hmm. So you, you can tell your partner, I know that in labor, if you don't affirm things, I'm going to automatically translate in my brain that you're weirded out and it's going to mess with me. <laughs> <laughs> like I'm going to do it in my brain. So I just need you to vocally every now and again, check in, tell me I'm doing a great job and you're proud of me and you love everything I'm doing to bring our baby to us. I love that because these are all of the things that combine that make this transition stage possible like it's what gets the birther through the self-doubt onto the other side yeah and it's amazing how you can see someone take that step I don't know if you've had a birth where you've had a very prominent transition but there's oftentimes either like something somebody says or you making the decision I know a lot of women who will tell me I was feeling all the self-doubt and I was gonna get something or I wanted something to change and then someone said oh why don't we just try again in half an hour Or why don't we talk again about this in half an hour? How about you do this for an hour? That's a tool I use a lot. Mm -hmm. How about we try a different position and get you some water and move a little bit. And in one hour, if you still feel like you absolutely can't do this, let's talk again. Yeah. And a lot of times it's like, okay, I can do an hour. 
Exactly. Because a lot of times time comes into the factor where mm-hmm. we hit transition, which usually means you're close. But in our brains, we're thinking, I feel like I've been at this forever mm-hmm. and there's no end. Yeah. There's yeah. no, nobody can tell me when this will be over. So our minds, of course, blow a little out of proportion and start saying, hmm, I'll be doing this for the rest of my life. I'm going to be doing this forever <laughs> and I don't want to. Like right. I can't do this if it's going to be a long time. Right. But if you give someone kind of something for that time side of our brain to hold on to, that can be a good tool in pushing us like, oh, okay, yeah, an hour. This yeah, two, I this can do an hour. Shall pass. Yeah, mm-hmm. exactly. Mm-hmm. I love that. So I... I'm so fascinated by this topic. And if you have any really cool transition stories, we both would love to hear them. We're on Instagram, Baba Birth or Freya Birth. And maybe you'll get spotlighted on a future podcast or something if you tell us a real wonky story. We love all of the like interesting things. If you want to come tell us, we'd love to hear it. And I'd love to end with a little poem or it's kind of a prayer, actually. I think is really beautiful for this. And it's in a form of like Christianity. It's like, well, God, that's not just Christianity. Mm-hmm. It's in the form of like speaking to God in, in, in the a form prayer. of theism. <laughs> theism, yes. Um, but I hope you can, even if you're not someone who believes in God, translate it to the meaning, right? Give me a candle of the spirit, O God, as I go down into the deep of my own being. Show me the hidden things. Take me down to the spring of my life and tell me my nature and my name. Give me freedom to grow so that I may become my true self, the fulfillment of the seed which you planted in me at my making. Thank you for joining us as we step into darkness, knowing we will find light.